Good morning. Hope you're doing well. Oh, good. Y'all got the memo that the front row had a lot of diseases on it, so you don't sit on it that good. Just wanted to make sure. Everybody gets the memo usually every week, so what a relief. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You don't have to sit on the front row. I do spit far, so you don't want spit on you. We are in the book of Acts, so if you have a book, you can uh, turn to Acts chapter 27. If you're a guest, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I sound weird. I'm usually not this quirky. Um, we, uh, we've been going through the book of Acts for uh, a while now, and we are in the book of Acts chapter 27. So we're at the very end, and we are uh, getting close to being done with the book of Acts. And after this, uh, as I've announced, we're gonna, as we finish Acts, we're going to go to Judges in the Old Testament. Um, and if you've read Judges, you know, like, whew, that's kind of depressing. And so we're going to end with Ruth, which is in the same time period. And it's a happy story in the midst of some sadness. So uh, after this, we're going to do Judges-Ruth um, together. Um, I always memorized it in the, in the, when I was little because Joshua Judges Ruth is like a sentence. And so you can remember that in the Old Testament if you're trying to memorize the Old Testament. Anyway, back to the book of Acts. So we've been going through the book of Acts. And as I said, uh, two weeks ago, uh, I preached the first half of 27. Um, but the sermon I wrote was extraordinarily long. And so what I did is I only preached half of the sermon two weeks ago. And then last week, Joe preached. And so what I'm going to do now is preach the second half of that same sermon from two weeks ago. So I'll do a little bit of review uh, so that everybody can kind of understand what's going on in uh, the first half of 27. And then I'm just going to pick right up kind of where I was in the middle of the sermon and preach the second half, which means for you, um, your sermon time from two weeks ago and this time are shorter than normal. So that, you know, you, if you like that, then that's good for you. I don't like that. I like really long sermons. No surprise there, but they're shorter today. So uh, here at Remedy, we always read the text before we study it. So if you're able to stand, uh, and you have your Bible, you can open up to Acts 27, 27. That's where we're going to start. We're going to read from 27, 27 through 44. That's the second half of what we'll be studying. At the end of reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And when I say that, you'll say, thanks be to God. Uh, and that's signifying really, obviously, that you're thankful to the Lord to give his scriptures to us. But also, um, let that serve for you as a way to say the things that God teaches me today, I want, to say, I want to say yes to. I want to obey those things as well. So chapter 27, verse 27. We're picking up in the middle of the shipwreck, but we'll, uh, the, we'll pick up. On, I'll explain. Verse 27. When the 14th night had come across, had come, we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight. The sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might, by the way, it's like 0.1 of a mile, uh, we might run into the rocks. They let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. As the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship uh, and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out the anchors, anchors from the bow, the Paul said to the Syrian and the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. It will give you strength for not a hair is to perish from the, any of your heads of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of uh, of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all about 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, when it was day, 
they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. They, so they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind, and they made for the beach. But striking a reef or a sandbar, they ran the vessel aground, the bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and the rest on the planks, the woods, pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to the land. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word that you've given to us. I thank you that... uh, Stories of a shipwreck from 2,000 years ago, which seemingly have no application to our everyday lives with the internet and cars and, and such, uh, have major application to our life. And uh, I pray that we would see that. I pray more than anything that we don't just gain life principles to have applications to our lives to try to uh, adjust little things in our lives, but instead that we see that this story and every story in the Bible um, lifts high the name of Jesus. And so the gospel would be clear. And that our affections would be drawn to Christ as we see what's going on in this story. And so I pray for help, Lord. There's no way I can do this without you. So please come and help me speak truthfully and uh, speak your word so that we can all be blessed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I'm going to start out with the map so that you can all know what's going on. Uh, And so... Last week I used it just to let you know what's going on. So whenever we were finishing Acts chapter 26, we saw that Paul was around here in this area in Jerusalem. This is, of course, uh, this is the northern tip of Africa. This is in the Middle East. And so uh, they, they told Paul that he's going to go to Rome, to Caesar, which is way over there in the top right, top left corner. And so uh, they've been taking a ship. They had to uh, take one ship. They made a ship change. They got here. When they got to this little island of Crete here, they were right here in Fair Havens. And Paul said, we need to stay in Fair Havens. It's towards October, November. We, we don't need to try to go out anymore. If we do, uh, it's going to go bad. I know the Mediterranean Sea. We need to stay right here. And they're like, no, we can make it. We're just going to swing around this little island a little bit here from Fair Havens to Phoenix. And Phoenix is a much better place to stay for the winter. And so we're just going to go to to, to Phoenix, and that's where we'll go, and we'll winter there. Well, little did they know that Paul was right, and so as soon as they kind of make out from Fair Havens, they go on a huge Gilligan's Island, three-hour tour, but really 15, 14-day, lost at sea. So they, they leave Fair Havens, and this huge, it, it, the, the word in the Greek is typhoon, it's like hurricane-type winds, blow them out here, and they literally have no idea where they are for 14 days. And what we see here at the very last verse in verse 44 is where they finally, it says, and alas, they all make it, they're going to come into this little place called Malta. Uh, it's a little island. They're going to figure out where they are. They're going to get another ship because this, and so they finally get to their third ship whether, when we get in Acts chapter 28, get to Rome. But what we're going to do is pick up from uh, in the middle of chapter 20, 27, 27. We're in the middle here where they're all lost at storm, and we're going to get to Malta. So last week, we looked at that, that first half. And so just to remind us of a couple things, um, the first thing that we saw 
last week, when, or two weeks ago, whenever we're in chapter uh, 27. Chapter 27 breaks up into, I think, three kind of big pieces uh, whenever you're wanting to outline it. So the first piece was, go ahead to number one. Uh, point one was the C in the warning. That would be verses 1 through 12. So the sea is something that uh, Israelites were not fond of. They were scared of it. They called the sea the monster. And uh, as you look through most of, of it, uh, m- most tried to stay away. Um, but uh, there's the sea and then there's also the warning. Which the warning comes from Paul to them, which is we should stay here. And if we don't stay here, things are going to go bad, I promise you. Well, they don't listen to Paul, which brings us to the second section. So go ahead and put up number two. Uh, when we're looking at this, the storm and the angels. So we have the storm hit, which is what Paul said. If we leave Fair Havens, the storm's going to happen and it's going to go bad and it does go bad. Um, well, I want to make sure that we can feel the full measure of weight of despair that all these men had. Now we saw today in verse 37 that there's 276 people on this ship. Usually, you know, in a, in a group of people, half are pessimists, half are os- optimists. So uh, you've got about 130 optimists there that also think to themselves, we're going to die. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 is, um, now there, imagine being on a boat with hurricane type winds where the storm is blowing so hard you can't see. It's raining so hard for 14 days and that for the entire 14 days, the sun never comes out. It's literally storm dark, scary for 14 straight days. Everybody on the ship, all 276, feel this after the 14th day. When the sun nor stars appeared for many days, that's 11 more days, and no small tempest lay on us. Now, they, this is a colloquialism of Hebrew. When they say no small, whatever, they do this quite often, it means rather large. So they have a really large storm on us. Here it is. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Every single one of them on this ship say, We've all accepted it. It's 14 days. It doesn't seem like it's going to end. We have no clue where we are. We're going to die. We just, we've all accepted it. And then right there at verse 21, Paul stands up and gives them this unbelievable encouragement. It, we have to realize after they had reached the lowest rungs of despair is whenever the Lord comes to Paul and visits him by way of an angel and says, don't despair. Everything's going to be fine. Which So as we're going through last week's sermon, I said, the... The refrain of chapter 27 over and over that, that the Holy Spirit through the writer of Luke um, is warning us to see is this, is that God is good, that God's going to accomplish his purposes, and so you can trust him and you need to obey him in your life. Now, this storm certainly can be absolutely emblematic of your life. No Christian is promised that they're not going to suffer. Look at Job. Look at Look at Joseph, look at Paul, look at the disciples, look at Jesus, right? Every person that we know in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, that follows the Lord is going to have some kind of suffering in their life because they live in a Genesis 3 broken, fallen world. And we're no different. And so this this storm is emblematic even for us. So as the refrain happens for Paul throughout chapter 27, the same is true for us. And so in you, you might be in a valley right now, you might be on a mountaintop in your life, but I promise you, One's always going to keep coming. And so the refrain that's being told for us in Acts chapter 27 for Paul, it's the same for you. God is good. God is going to accomplish his purposes in your life. And so you can trust him and you need to obey him. So over and over, we're going to see that refrain. Now, um, when Paul stands up in verse 21 and gives this amazing encouragement, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty important. 
um, the, the encouragements he gives them are threefold. Uh, one, you can see it there in verse, well, he says, men, he, verse 21 is he's like, you know, he kind of rubs their nose in it. You should have listened to me. <laughs> and then, but we, it's also put up for the point of like, hey, listen to me also for what I'm going to say. And he says this twice. He's, remember, we talked about this last week in verse 22 and verse 25. Um, he says, I urge you to take heart in verse 25. So take heart. So he says this, take heart twice. Now, this isn't just happenstance. This is um, very much uh, something that Christ has already told him. If you remember in chapter 26, um, I'm sorry, not 26, chapter 23, verse 11, when Paul was in jail and he was in the utter, utter point of despair thinking that he was going to die in jail, Jesus himself appears to Paul in chapter 23, 11 and tells him, take courage. Now, and, and here it says, take courage, and here it says, take heart. But in the Greek, it's the same word. So the word that Jesus delivered to Paul in the, the midst of his despair in a Roman prison to take courage. And then he says, you've been faithful to testify me about where, in me in Jerusalem, which is where he said, he said, you're also going to go all the way to Rome. So if he's in a boat towards Rome, and Jesus has promised that you're going to, you're going to testify about me in Rome, this boat ride means you're not going to die, Paul, because <laughs> I've already promised you're going to get to Rome. So Paul knows this, and he tells the exact same word that he's told to take heart. Paul takes that, and so where he was in despair in a Roman prison, these guys are all in despair in this ship by Roman guards, and they're all feeling the same thing. So Paul takes the same words of encouragement from Christ and gives it to them and says, take heart. So he gives them three. First is he tells them, take heart, take courage. Keep faith in God. The second thing he tells them is that nobody's going to die, which is a great thing to hear when you think you're going to die. Um, he says, there will be no loss of life on the ship. That's what he says in the second half of 22. And then the third thing he tells them, which I think is great news. Now, I, whenever I first got married 20 years ago, um, 20 years ago, this coming June will be 20 years, um, we went on a cruise. That's my first and my last cruise ever. Um, if you've ever been on a cruise, Here's the thing. There's unlimited food, but you never are walking on the dirt. You're like, I look out and it's just water everywhere and I'm getting motion sick. I just want to walk on the earth. And so uh, that, mine was just four days. I can't even imagine after 14 days of not being able to walk on the earth where you're just like, I, I cannot be on this boat anymore. And they were in hurricane-like winds. And so Paul, the third encouragement he, he says is, you are, <laughs> you're going to get to walk on land soon. He says it in 26. Um, but we must run aground on some island. So when he tells them, God says, we're going to go to an island, you're just like, praise the Lord. I don't even care if survivors happening there. Like, just get me off this boat. I'm barely surviving here. So the, he tells them these three great encouragements here um, in verses 21 through 26. So that's got to turn the tides and their emotional um, kind of wherewithal in verse 20, where they had all reached the absolute uh, depths of despair. Now, we're starting at 27, and that brings us into kind of right off the heels of the encouragement of Paul. And now we're at, at, at verse 27. Now, in verses 27 through 38, we're still in this second point, the storm and the angel. Um, but we're in 27 through 38 now. And in 27 through 38, Paul's going to do two particular things here. I call them Paul's two pensive acts. That means they're, they're thoughtful and he's using lots of strategery, as one person would say. So he's using strategery here. He's, he's going to do two really thoughtful, important acts. The first one is in 27 through 32. The second one is in 33 through 38. And the, both of these things are important for everybody on, on the ship to live. So they're, they're, they're hugely important. 
First one, in verses 27 through 32, the first pensive act of Paul is that he keeps everyone together. And by keeping everyone together, he keeps them alive. If he doesn't keep them together, the the promise of God's off and they're probably going to die. Look at verse 27. 14th night had come. They're being driven across this Adriatic Sea. It's midnight and they think they're getting close to land. This nearing land, by the way, which we see is the beach that they get to at verse 39. Uh, Incidentally, right now in the island of Malta, that bay that they they actually went to has been appropriately named St. Paul's Bay. Um, And so, because he's the one that found it. Well, they, it was already found, but he's the one that made it famous. So verse 28, you can, they see that they're close. They, they're 20 fathoms. They're 15 fathoms. This is like 0.1 miles away. They know they're close. But what they don't know since it's midnight is if we go into this island, are we going into beach? Or are we going into rocks? If we go into rocks, the ship's going to fall apart because ships don't run into rocks very well. And we're all going to die. So we're just going to right now put down all the anchors. Uh, this night, and you can see in the end of verse 29, it says, and just pray for day to come. I love that. that. Remember, on this boat, there's 276 people, but it's not like 276 Christians, right? It's, it's, it's a Roman-bought, rented ship. So there's the sailors who are just, the Romans are paying them to get us somewhere. You've got the, the Roman centurions and guards that are guarding the prisoners. And so you've got three different kinds of people here. None of them really care about but just their own little group. Um, and the prisoners aren't necessarily great people, but the Romans guards have to watch them, and they've just hired the sailors. So the sailors aren't necessarily, you know, going to do what the Roman guards say, but they are paying them. So here we are, and they're just going to pray for day to come. And so Paul, uh, in the midst of all these pagans, uh, it says that we prayed for day to come. I love that. And then it says in verse 30, uh, this is around midnight, the sneaky sailors, you know, there's, there's three different groups. The sneaky sailors are like, here's the deal. This ship... <laughs> is done for. And I don't want to stay on this ship anymore. So what we're going to do is we're going to sneak out of this bad boy and just let the the centurions and the prisoners figure it out themselves. I'm not staying on this ship anymore. I know there's something over there. We're going to just get out of here. So in verse 30, you can see, and as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, they lowered the ship's boat. That means you got the big boat. They lowered the little lifeboat down, also called the dinghy. I just think that's funny. They lowered the dinghy down. And so as they're lowering the dinghy down, um, Paul notices what's going on. And so he's like, goes over to, Paul the prisoner goes over to one of the centurions, probably Julius, which by the way, from verse three, if you see in verse three, Julius is the centurion, the Roman guard, that's actually kind to Paul. Most Roman guards don't need to be kind to prisoners. That's just not their way. But this particular guard has been kind to Paul continually, and he's going to even be kind later. Uh, So Paul goes to him and says to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay on the ship, the little soldiers trying to, uh, I'm sorry, the sailors trying to get out of here, you cannot be saved. In other words, God made the deal with us in 21 through 25 uh, that if everybody stays on the ship, everybody lives. If some people live, deal's off. I don't know what's going to happen, but probably everybody dies. And so the, the Roman soldiers are thinking, well, that doesn't sound good to me. So verse 32, the Roman soldiers cut away the rope the ropes of the ship, and it just goes, and the sailor's like, what'd you do that for? And, you know, they're all mad. You can just imagine. They probably said it not in English, but you know what I mean. So they're all mad. So that's the first thing that we see Paul doing here is this. In 27 through 32 is keeping everyone together, and thus by keeping everyone together because of God's promises, keeping everyone alive. So you can call him a tattletale, but nevertheless, he keeps him alive. Um, And the interesting part is this. Paul's a prisoner, He's a prisoner. The Roman guards listened to the prisoner. They didn't listen to him last time, and it cost them dearly. 
now they've learned we need to listen. So the prisoner, Paul, keeps everyone alive. Now, if there's an application that we, when we're looking at this, I think it's this. Um, Paul was given directions by God and he chooses to obey. Uh, he did it, obviously, for great reasons, keep everybody alive. But nevertheless, he does it. And so God told him to do it. And when he did it, he obeyed and life was saved. Now, I think it's easy for us to obey God and the real obvious things about how it, if we're going to obey God and we know it's going to benefit everybody and that's actually good for everybody, those are easier things to obey. But there's also hard things to obey, right? Difficult things that don't necessarily benefit everybody. And sometimes you're wondering, how is this going to work out? And, and, and what I want us to stop and ask and, and think through is these things are easy to obey. But sometimes God calls us to hard things and he wants to obey us to obey those as well. Paul's obedient here and gives us a, certainly a good lesson on how we should be obedient. So as we come to the close of this first section, 27 through 32, what is it that the Lord is asking you to obey? And are you obeying it? Not just the easy ones. Like if I do this, bunches of people get saved and I'm the hero. Of course that's easy. But even harder stuff. You know, is he asking you to uh, go across your street and talk to that neighbor that you don't want to, or asking you to take some of the money that you've been saving for something that you really want to uh, treat yourself to uh, and, and, and give it away to somebody else for, for something that can really help them. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of things that we can, um, we can be obedient to, but it's not just the easy things, but the hard things. That's the first thing Paul does, is the first pensive act of Paul is he keeps everyone together, thus keeping everybody alive. The second thing that Paul does, and this is so, like, unbelievably obvious and practically obvious, but nevertheless, he does it. He tells everybody to eat. They, they haven't eaten for 14 days. Look in verse 33. Um, as it was dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, today's the 14th day that you continued in suspense. Now, it could be that they're just seasick and like, I can't eat, or it's hard to cook when it's raining that hard, or everything's just soaking wet and they got to let it dry. Who knows what it is? Or maybe they're all just like nervous. I can't eat when I'm nervous. Who knows what it is? But nevertheless, Paul's going to tell them it's been 14 days since we've eaten. Everybody needs to eat. And it's going to prove to be pretty good because some people are going to have to swim to shore. And so it's good that they had some food. But nevertheless, he tells them all to eat here. You can see it's the 14th day. You continue without, in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. Now, when we hear it and we hear it, that Paul's telling that, we just kind of like, it's Paul, everybody listens. But if we take one kind of step back and realize where he is, this is pretty astounding. He's the prisoner with sailors and Roman guards. He has no standing here whatsoever. And yet he's the one that seems to emerge to the top from everybody. And it's like, everybody needs to eat. And everybody's listening to the prisoner. I think that's pretty amazing. Um, which just shows us that God uses, God uses us in any kind of stage we're in. And he, he is not troubled by the stage that you're in. If you think that you're in a lowly stage to rise to an occasion and be the voice that he would speak to whoever. But nevertheless, here he is. He tells everybody, I urge you. And what do they do? It says, uh, I urge you to do it. And then they do it. And it says, therefore, I urge you to take some food. It will give you strength, not for a hair of your head is to perish on any of you. That's quoting Jesus, by the way. I think that it's Matthew 10, 30 and Luke 19, 10, something like that. But Jesus makes this exact same uh, statement at another place. And then it says in verse 25, um, and when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and he began to eat. Now, Luke, who wrote Luke, 
uh, and also wrote Acts, is intentionally using these words. Because that's exactly the words, if you read when Jesus feeds the 5,000, Jesus feeds the 4,000, Jesus uses these kinds of words. When, Luke, when Luke's describing, he took bread, looking up to God, he gave thanks, he broke it, and then they all began to eat. Um, and some commentators were like, Paul's doing the Lord's Supper with everybody. And the other commentators was like, that's ridiculous. Paul's not doing the Lord's Supper. He's theologically astute enough not to do the Lord's Supper with a bunch of non-Christians. And so I, I think that's true, right? He's not doing the Lord's Supper. One commentator says, it wasn't a sacred meal, the Lord's Supper, that he shared with the men, but it was a sacred moment. It was a sacred moment where he, after 14 days, helps them understand the need to eat. And in doing so, he encourages them to, uh, he encourages them to be filled and be fed. Now, here's where it gets awesome. After they finally eat and they get some food in their belly, then it says in verse 36, then, finally, they were all encouraged. Now, this word encourage, same word as we see in 22 and 25, take heart. Now, he told them back in 22 and 25 to take heart. But finally, after they are realizing they're not going to die and they finally get some food in the belly, the message of taking heart happens. Now they're finally taking heart. They're feeling encouraged and they ate some food themselves. And it says, we, now the we, the first person plural means Luke was there on the boat. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when eaten enough, they lighten the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. So after everybody got everything they could, take all the excess food, chunk it in the, in the sea because we need the boat to be lighter. That's just common practice back then. Now, so what I want to do is after we're finishing this section um, that we've been looking at, I want to point to just a couple things uh, that are pretty obvious. Well, actually, let me, let me close this, this little section here. 33 through 38, Paul and his pensive act tells everyone to eat. Paul um, looks out for everyone that's there and tells them to eat. And in the same way, if we're going to make an application from 33 to 38, is um, Paul, no matter his station as a prisoner, still knows that the Lord wants him to care for people and, 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 and speak words to them that help them for their, for their general welfare of their life. And in the same way, he wants that for you. No matter what station you're in, he wants you to care enough about all those around you and to know where they are and speak words that, that build up their welfare of life. I mean, here it's just eat. So it might not be that Paul, that he's just telling you, hey, church member at Remedy, whenever somebody's hungry, tell them to eat. <laughs> it's not a one-to-one. It's like tell people whenever there's things going on in their life that can help them grow not just in their spiritual faith, but even physically, speak these kind words to them. That's what he does here. Now, as we're finishing this section, 27 and really 21, all the way to 38, I want to I point out something to you, which I think is pretty amazing. Um, for right now, Paul's public square is this boat. He's on this boat with 276 men. And for him right now, this is his ministry. This is the place that God has placed him to talk about Jesus whenever he, he possibly can. And I just want you to notice as we're finishing this, how free and how non-weird it is when Paul in his public square now talks about God to the pagans. Notice in verse 21 and, and following, whenever he says, man, you should listen to me, but don't, don't worry about it. Remember, he's talking to pagans. God visited me. And he says in verse 23, uh, God, an angel before God, stood for whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, don't be afraid. God's granted all your lives as well. So have faith in God. So we can see in that first section uh, where we're in 21 and following, where in front of the pagans, Paul and his public square that he's in, it's just easy for him to talk about God. It's no big deal. As well as when he's sharing this meal with them with a bunch of pagans 
It's no big deal. It's just commonplace for him to say, hey, before everyone here eats, I'm going to offer thanks to God and pray with all of you pagans, and we're going to thank God for this food. And so what we see here is just how, how easy it is for Paul uh, to speak about God in his public square with people that aren't believers. And in the same way, we should also look for clear and appropriate ways to bear witness about Jesus in our public square. And it doesn't have to be awkward. I don't think this is, and they're feeling like super awkward when Paul's doing this. I, I, it can sometimes for us feel like, it, it seems hard to do to bear witness to Christ. I'm like, hey, uh, you like the Super Bowl? Jesus likes the Super Bowl too. Ah, oh, I'm bad at this. It doesn't have to be like this weird, pushed, forced kind of thing, right? Like Paul's just naturally talking about God with pagans and they seem to be like, oh yeah, that's Paul. That's, that's how it works. And I think the key is this. The closer Paul is in relying to Jesus and the more that he, uh, as John 15, I think it's 15, um, is remaining with Jesus, then the easier it is to talk about Jesus in your public square. The, this, the, the more distant you get from God, the more distant you don't walk with Christ, the more difficult it is to talk about and, and, and feels really uncommon to talk about Jesus in your public square. So if you're wondering why, why is it that it's so difficult for me? It might be, I'm not saying it is, but it might be that your proximity to Jesus needs to, needs to close. You need to be closer and more walking with him. And I, I, It just seems, and I think it is true, as it says in John 15, the, the closer we are to Jesus, the easier it is to, to talk about him in, in really easy, common ways to non-Christians that don't threaten them, but just make it seem so natural. That's what we want. I mean, I think that's what we all, uh, we all want that to be natural. Kent Hughes says it this way, but if our hearts bear the anchor of the Lord's presence, pun intended, bear the anchor of the Lord's presence. In other words, God's presence is clear, but if our hearts bear the anchor of the Lord's presence, ownership and service, we'll be able to stand tall in any storm and speak clearly in our public square. So, uh, Let's, let's keep that in mind and see this example of Paul about how it's just so natural for him to talk about Christ with these pagans on the ship. And let's strive for that also in our own life. Now, if you're looking at this little section here and you know there's a shipwreck coming and people are needing to be saved, etc. If you know your Old Testament, you're thinking to yourself, this sounds kind of like somebody in the Old Testament, but there's a contrast from Paul to that person in the Old Testament. And I believe that's Luke's intention. He's wanting you to think of Jonah here, and he's wanting you to think of how Paul is specifically not Jonah-like at all. So, as N.T. Wright says, and of course, part of Luke's point is precisely that Paul is not Jonah. He's not running away. You know, Jonah was told to go preach to this great city, and so he runs the other way to a ship. Um, and Paul's t- told to go preach to this great city, Rome. And so he gets himself put in prison and appeals to Caesar so he can get straight to Rome. And so he's not Jonah. He's not running away. Instead, he's going to be faithful to preach to the great imperial capital, unlike Jonah who ran the other way to which he was bound. And he's certainly, as Paul, he's not going to be thrown overboard. Jonah was thrown overboard. Paul's going to stay right on the ship. And the interesting part is, in Jonah, he caused the storm. Paul didn't cause the storm. Jonah caused the storm. And so he was thrown overboard from the ship in order to save the crew with Paul unlike Jonah he doesn't cause the storm and it's precisely his presence on the ship and everyone's presence that saves the crew so he's not like Jonah at all and he's wanting you to see as he's writing this Luke is no without doubt that he doesn't run away he does what God calls him and so therefore the refrain comes up that means this 
God's good. God's going to accomplish his purposes. Even with Jonah, he accomplished his purposes, not the way that Jonah wanted. If he had just done what he wanted, it would have gone, the way, it would have gone way better. But God's good. He's going to accomplish his purposes so you can trust him. And you should obey him. Now we get to the last section, the third section of, the, of chapter 27, the shipwreck. It's number three. You can put it up. The shipwreck and salvation. This is verse 39 through 44. And remember, uh, like all the other sections, this section is the main point is that we can trust God. Verse 39. And when it was day, they did not recognize the land because they'd, they'd never been there. If you want to know why it's Malta, it tells us in 28.1. When we were brought slaves, though, we learned that this island was called Malta. So we know it's Malta. So back to 39. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with the beach. If there's anybody that deserves a beach vacation here, that's, that's Paul, right? And these guys, they, they've been through it, right? Good beach vacation. I guess they don't necessarily get a vacation, but nevertheless, he gets to stand on the beach for a few moments. Um, <laughs> on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So just imagine they're out in the water. There's the beach. Now, if it was a bunch of rocks, you didn't want to run your ship into the rocks because it'll go. But when it's just this nice little sandy beach, you can say, you know what? We can just run this ship straight up onto the dirt and we'll stop it. We can just get off. That's the plan. But that's not what happens. They think they can do that. But as they're going, they don't see the massive sandbar that's there. And so this, there's this thing called kind of between two seas. So they, they, they hoist the sail and it starts taking off and they make for it. And they hit that sandbar and boom, they stick there. And all of a sudden they're caught between these two. Um, and then the, the surf starts hitting the boat and it starts breaking it apart. All right, look at it in verse 40. So they cast off the anchors. They're going to throw off the anchors and they're just, we're going to go for that beach and left those anchors in the sea. And at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, they hoisted the foresail up and they got the wind behind them and they made for that beach. But, oh, didn't plan on it. They struck a reef. They struck this massive sandbar into the water they couldn't see. And the vessel ran aground there. And it says the boat bounced up. And remained immovable. And the stern was being broken up by the surf. So now the, the surf is hitting the boats and the boat's starting to shatter into little pieces. Um, it says the stern was being broken up by the surf. When we get to 42, N.T. Wright says, every time I read verse 42, I get angry. He, it says this. The soldiers, remember you've got the soldiers, the prisoners, and the, the sailors here. The soldiers are like, oh, we're stuck. We're in charge of all these prisoners. Let's just kill them. <laughs> verse 42. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest anyone should swim away and escape. And N.T. Wright says, I always get angry. He's like, they're still people. I mean, they are prisoners, and they probably have all done some wicked stuff, right? They're criminals. But just kill them? Why just kill them? Why not just help them to land? Um, the reason why they're going to just kill them is uh, the, the Roman law is that if any prisoner escapes from a Roman guard, then the guard now is held liable for the punishment of whatever this guy was going to get. So if he was going to get death, you, well, you're going to get death. So like, so we don't want to die. We know as soon as they get to the shore, they're going to take off from us and they're all going to escape. So let's just kill all the prisoners. And if we kill all the prisoners, then we and the sailors will just go ahead and get in the water and we'll just, we'll make it to the shore. Again, breaking the promise. So that's not going to work. And in steps in verse 43, Julius, this great uh, centurion who's been so kind to Paul continually. Julius steps in and is like, don't kill the prisoners. And specifically Paul, verse 43, we're just going to kill them all. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. Julius the centurion, which if you see, he's mentioned in kind of those first three verses. He knows by now, this guy Paul is a special person. He needs to be saved. Because it's important that he do what God wants him to do. I, I'm not sure that Julius is becoming a Christian, 
But nevertheless, he knows something that's important about Paul because he's been right the whole time. And he's, everything he's saying, everybody should be listening to. He's like, no, we're not going to kill the prisoners because Paul can't die. And so uh, this ex- extreme kindness that the centurion shows to Paul uh, is, is shown to us. And Paul's saved. And yet again, chalk it up uh, another time when the sovereign hand of God uses Roman soldiers to save the life of Paul. This has been over and over since Paul's been arrested, where God uses pagan governments to save his apostle. That just highlights for us the sovereignty of God. Verse 43, uh, the centurion's wishing to save Paul kept him from that. And he ordered those who can make, who could swim to jump overboard and first make for the land. So you've got all these prisoners and you've got two groups of prisoners. You've got prisoners that can swim and you've got prisoners that can't swim. So all you who can swim, you know, we're just a little bit away. We're probably you know, I don't know, 500 yards or so. All of you who can swim, you start swimming. All of you who can't swim, the, the surf's breaking up here against the ship. Grab a piece of, of wood and Lady Titanic into the shore. By the way, there was room for him. I'm just saying there was room for him. She just, no room for you, buddy. Anyway, don't watch it. You probably shouldn't. Um, you know, if you see it, you know what I'm talking about. What a, what a selfish lady. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Don't get mad. Titanic's great. So anyway, uh, you got two groups, right? People that are supposed to swim, I'm sorry. And then you've got the other people who don't know how to swim, and they're just going to lady Titanic on the planks and pieces ship and, and float into the shore. Uh, so that's the two, that's the two things. Um, and then you get to 44B, where, where Luke, I mean, this, if you were just sit down and read chapter 27 from the beginning to the end, this is a, like, ner- it makes you so nervous. Like, you're, what's going to happen? What's going to happen every turn? And then he finishes it finally. Like, the last sentence is the resolution. The last half of the verse, of the last verse, is fi- the final resolution where he says, <gasps> and so it all was, that all were brought safe to the land. You're just like, thank you, Luke. Goodness gracious, you had me nervous the whole time. So um, here, what we see then is this. As, as Luke kind of exhales 27 to us and say, and so it was, all were brought safely to land. And so it was, what he's saying, all of God's promises are held to be true. You can trust him. And they were brought to the land and therefore God keeps his promises and all 276 people make it safe to the beach here in Malta. Which brings us the refrain again. God is good. He's going to accomplish his purposes. You can trust him. You can trust him. You can obey him. This chapter 27 is meant to be emblematic of the way you think about your life. There's storms. You're tossed to and fro. You have highs and lows. Things are good. Things are bad. Whatever. And as those things happen in your life, over and over, there's a sovereign God who, of course, could stop these things. But this is the product of living in a broken world. And he wants you to say, not God, won't you just make it all stop? Of course, we, we can cry that out, but that doesn't mean it's going to happen. But more so, he wants us to say, I trust you. You're good. You're going to accomplish your purposes. So, Lord, help me obey your will. That's what he's wanting us to see. And so the subtle refrain goes to us. Now, as we're finishing this chapter, I want us to see that this story is not primarily about a guy named Paul. But instead, it's primarily about a guy named Jesus. And I don't think there's any doubt what Luke's trying to do here. So I want to help you see how the story of Paul is really just the shadow of the story of Jesus, which is the real reality. And if you were to flip over to the book of Luke, you would have the reality of this story, the shadow. Here's the shadow, the the, the life of Paul. Paul, who took on the judgment as a criminal, delivers the word of the Lord to them that they're going to live if they'll listen. And so they believe him. And then... 
by believing him, they are assuredly and eventually saved by the criminal that gets them safely to the land. That's what happens. And in the same way, that's but the shadow of the real story, which is Jesus, who is 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Therefore, Jesus took on the judgment of the criminal from God. He wasn't a criminal, but he became a criminal at, by taking on our sin at the cross, going to the cross. He comes to, Jesus comes to earth. He delivers the word of God to the people, just like Paul does, and asks them to just believe that if they trust in him and on his death on the cross, if they believe and repent of their sin, they can be forgiven of all their sin. And he defeats Satan's sin and death, and he's raised from the dead. And now if you'll just believe, you can also be saved by the criminal. That doesn't just deliver you to safe land, but safely will deliver you finally to the promised land in heaven one day with Christ. That's the reality. Paul's just the shadow of the reality. And so that message where Jesus is actually the hero of every single page of this Bible is what you need to hear more than anything. Sure, the applications and the principles can be helpful, but the most important thing that every single person here, if you're not a believer in Christ, the most important thing that you can hear right now is that Jesus Christ is the hero of this story because he was willing to come and take the role of a criminal, even though he was completely sinless, and be willing to go onto the cross as a criminal and die for your sin so that all of your sin could be forgiven if you repent and trust in him. And for everybody that is a Christian, not just non-Christians, but everybody that is a Christian, that's the most important thing that you can hear today. Instead of reverting back over to law-keeping and rule-following, you're thinking that's the way God's going to love you and finally call you his, you need to realize that the righteousness of Christ, full righteousness of Christ, has been imputed to you at salvation, and you are completely forgiven. And Jesus is your hero who took on, because you're really the criminal, I'm really the criminal, and Jesus took on the role of criminal for us, and therefore his righteousness is given to us. And now, because you trust in him, he will one day finally not just deliver you safely to land, but to the promised land. You'll be in heaven, forgiven with him forever. That's how Jesus is the hero of Acts chapter 27. So to conclude, I want to read you this quote. It comes from N.T. Wright. And what he's wanting us to see is that this boat and these people in this storm are really kind of like... Uh, a metaphor for the church over the last 2,000 years. The church is going to experience suffering and ups and downs like this. And he says, the gospel of Jesus crucified and risen means, if anything at all, it means that those who carry it, that's believers, will have it branded into their souls, the gospel branded into their souls. The idea of the church as a little ship was not invented at this stage. And so, like I said, this is kind of a metaphor of what's going to happen for the church for the 2,000 years. But Luke was already there. The storms do not mean that the journey is futile, meaning the difficulties you experience in life are not for any purpose. They're all for a purpose. God is going to use every single one of those. Romans 8, 28, Genesis 50, 20. They're all going to be used for his good and your good. So anything that's difficult in your life is not futile. It's all for his good, your good and, and his glory. So the storms don't mean the journey is futile. They merely mean that Jesus is claiming the world as his own and that the powers of the world would do their best to resist. Satan hates the church, and he wants the church to not carry out the will of God in fulfilling the Great Commission. And he'll do everything he can to make your life complete suffering. And when that's happening, you realize it's not because God 
hates me or is mad at me that this is happening. It's because Satan hates me, but God loves me. And therefore, I, I, I trust God completely in the midst of this because I know that if the two of them were to square off, God could squash Satan at any moment. It's like, a, like an ant in your, under your shoe. He has no chance. He has no chance. They're not evenly powered whatsoever. This merely means that God is claiming the world as his own and that the powers will do their best to resist. Those who are caught up in the middle of it all, that's us, the church, must recognize the mark of the cross for what it is and the claim of victory, here it is, already won in the unique events of Calvary, which means that we as the church, as we go through difficulties, the victory's already won. It was already won 2,000 years ago at Calvary. The cross ensures that we have already won, and so now we're already marching forward in victory to fulfill the Great Commission. So don't be afraid, Paul. You must appear before Caesar, is how N.T. Wright, and I just add, this isn't N.T. Wright, this is me. This is taking what he's saying, and I think this is what he means, just to make it super obvious for us all. Don't be afraid, church, because one day you will also appear before Caesar. That's this world. You are going to continually appear before people that don't know Jesus and be faithful to proclaim the gospel to them. And when you do, at one day, you will also appear safely to your promised land before Jesus himself as you fulfill the Great Commission. And he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. And so, yes, the church, it's going, being the church is going to be filled with ups and downs and sufferings. And we trust in the sovereign hand of God who says he loves us. He's good. He's going to accomplish his purposes through us. And so we can trust him and we should obey. Let's pray. God, be with us now. As we think on these things that we've learned from your word, as we think about what it means to be your children in this world and what it means to be uh, obedient to what you've called us to, we ask that you would help us uh, through the ups and downs of being the church, through the ups and downs of being your, your followers. We'd be like Paul and in our public squares freely talk about Jesus naturally, that you would, you would help us. We know that we need help at that. I'm super awkward, God, and I know I need help at that. So help us, Lord. Uh, remain close to you, so close to you that we can't, just can't help talk about Jesus. And it, it's just so natural. So that this lost, dying world, much like Paul's boat filled with people that don't know you, uh, there's people all around us that don't know you, that we can be salt and light like Paul was on that ship and talk about you. And Lord, that you would use us, that we would one day uh, be faithful to fulfill the Great Commission and then you'll call us home into the promised land. We love you. We praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to the time of the Lord's Supper. Uh, and this Lord's Supper is a time where we remember and celebrate the fact that God has declared us as righteous. Taking the bread and drinking the cup doesn't save you at all. It's a time where we remember what I just said, that Jesus is the hero of every page by declaring us righteous if we believe. And so we take the Lord's Supper reminding ourselves that that's true and reminding ourselves of who we are in Christ. And so while it's a somber moment, it's also a celebratory moment. And so as we take the Lord's Supper together, uh, if you're a believer in Christ, this time is for you. Come forward, get the bread, get the cup. Remind, be aware that one's juice and one's wine. Make sure you pick the juice or the wine, whichever one you want, um, and come back to your seat, and we'll take it all together. If you're not a believer in Christ, just watch. We're not going to be saved by, watching, by taking this Lord's Supper. We're just going to remember that we already are. And so you wouldn't be saved if you, if you ate it. You would just be eating bread and drinking wine or drinking juice. So uh, just observe, and you'll hear 
the gospel proclaimed in a tangible way. So whenever you're ready, Christians, come forward. There's also a table in the back. Uh, Whenever you're ready, you can come forward.